0: Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business and to simply pros to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Patrick Bailey.
1: And I'm your other co-host, Allie Martin. And before we dive into who our guest is for this episode, uh, we just want to say if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify specifically, we would really appreciate it if you gave us a rating and a review, hopefully a positive one, because they have just recently added that not too long ago. And uh, obviously, if you're listening on Apple or any other platform, we would appreciate it if you left a rating and a review there too.
0: Thank you for that, Allie. And today we have Michael Hiles of 10XTS where they are building a decentralized market by taking, you know, digital assets such as, you know, the stock market and digitizing them further onto the blockchain. So helping people get their money quicker and get those liquidity events mm-hmm. quicker. and With you
1: transparency.
0: Know, yes, essentially bringing the future yeah. to investing. So I'm really excited to learn about that. But also Michael is bringing our history nuggets for today because Cincinnati used to be huge in fintech and I'm really excited for what he's going to share with us. So on that note, let's bring him in. Let's do it. Welcome Michael Hiles of 10 XTS uh, to the podcast. Uh, Glad to have you on. Uh, We're excited to have somebody that understands blockchain technology, crypto, especially coming off of our last week's episode, where we kind of dove into crypto. So if you need that uh, reinforcement, please go back to that episode. But with that said, Michael, can you go ahead and give us an overview about yourself and 10 XTS?
2: Hey, thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Ali, for uh, having me as a guest on uh, WinFigsFly Fly podcast. And <laughs> thank you to all your listeners for uh, lending us your uh, ears and brains for the next uh, however long we go. But um, I'm Michael Hiles. I'm the CEO and the founder of Ten XTS. It's uh, one zero XTS. Uh, we are a uh, Cincinnati uh, incubated startup. Uh, we were born out of the uh, startup Cincy community and um, our company um, we are in the blockchain space but as opposed to being you know purely cryptocurrencies and digital assets uh, we're more of an enterprise application of the technology um, by applying blockchain uh, to traditional securities and regulated capital markets replacing the way things have been done you know, for decades uh which you know have been great but carry significant inefficiencies you know we're mm. ushering in a, a digital transformation of market infrastructure as uh you know tokens become you know traditional
0: securities so what does that mean to the everyday person yeah I'm like Sorry. can you give us some examples <laughs> sure. that would
1: be great
2: <laughs> sure so, so we have traditional securities right? Shares of stock in a company. You go to Robinhood and you buy shares of AAPL and you hold those investments in your portfolio. And when you decide that you've either lost enough or made enough money out of it, you'll go to sell it on the market. And then you have cryptocurrency and blockchain over on the other side where you have, you know, decentralized networks, and tokens, and, and and ultimately what I'm talking about is the merger between the two. So instead mm-hmm. of having a cryptocurrency token that is just a digital asset, doesn't necessarily represent anything other than a unit of account on a protocol-based decentralized network, a blockchain, mm-hmm. um, it actually represents an underlying asset as it's designated As a share of stock in a company, a limited partnership unit, um, you know, a a portion of a loan, you know, you Mm -hmm. basically can now fractionalize assets and designate ownership with tokens um, as opposed to the traditional form of managing cap tables. And, you know, who owns what when it comes to share registries, Um, it becomes a very efficient form of tracking Uh, traditional securities uh, inside of a regulatory ecosystem. So there's no confusion about our tokens because they are securities. They represent securities. So for example, if you have a startup and your startup's raising money and you want to raise a angel round or whatever and you decide, I'm going to sell some preferred shares in our company. Effectively, you can either keep as a book entry an uncertificated form of share. And, of course, there are many great mm-hmm. cap table management software platforms out there like Carta and, you know, all the traditional, you know, even Excel spreadsheet, right? You can track your, um, your cap table for your company in Excel. But in, in this instance, the shares are designated by an actual blockchain-based token,
0: how did you get involved with blockchain and crypto and see that as the way of the future, especially here in Cincinnati, right? I think we attribute uh, a quote, which is actually not truly attributed to Mark Twain, but like, you know, I'd want to live in Cincinnati because they're 10 years behind the rest of the world, you know, during the apocalypse, right? And so um, what what made you be more on the forefront in terms of technology and business?
2: Well, so that's a very... Interestingly, as we were talking before we started the uh, the session, um, th- there's a bit of a dichotomy because Cincinnati is actually very rich with a lot of firsts in technology, um, mm-hmm. technology in general, not just FinTech, but certainly FinTech. Uh, the very first acknowledged software company that just functioned as a software company in existence started in Cincinnati, Ohio. Systems. Most people don't. Have you ever heard of CINCOM? C-I-N-C-O-M? Uh,
1: it kind of rings a bell, but don't know anything about it.
2: Cincinnati Computing Systems was started in, I believe, 1967 mm. by a gentleman named Thomas Neese, nice, who is still today the CEO, also serves as the longest running CEO of a tech company in history. CENCOM was the very first company in history to say, hey, consumers ought to have a choice. You shouldn't have to be forced to buy your software from your hardware mainframe vendor. Here's a different version of accounting, right, or manufacturing. Yeah, 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 correct. And that literally gave birth to the entire concept of an independent software vendor and 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 the software industry. And so there were a lot of firsts attributed at the first enterprise resource planning system. You know, they had an MRP, a manufacturing resource planning Mm -hmm. system, Um, and then separately, you know, on the fintech side, of course, the Genie Network was founded by Fifth Third Bank and was considered Mm -hmm. to be not the first ATM network in existence because I believe that that was in. London in the UK, but in the United States was the very first uh, ATM machine network uh, in the United States, was born right in Cincinnati, Ohio with the Genie
1: Network. Who would have thought?
2: Who would have thought it, right? Yeah. And then separately, electronic trading, you know, being able to go to your E-Trade account or your Robinhood app. The idea Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. trading securities started with the Cincinnati Stock Exchange when we still had regional Mm -hmm. city-based equities exchanges. Yeah. Some other cool first. I was involved in a very cool first, Hamilton County, Ohio, uh, courtclerk.org, the Hamilton County Clerk of Courts. Um, a lot of people don't realize that um, the Clerk of Courts of Hamilton County was the very first ever in the world in history to connect their case management system to the World Wide Web through a browser so that you could do a case lookup. And it was acknowledged hmm. by the uh, Smithsonian Institute uh, for having done that. So I was on that project team. And then a couple years later, uh, we deployed the very first biometric device on a judge's bench so that a judge could e-sign a document directly into public official record wow. with a thumbprint. And that was in 2004,
0: right?
1: So – it seems like you've had the opportunity to experience some of these innovations along the way, but also it's clear that you've struggled to um, innovate now and, and, and partner with people within Cincinnati. So what, what's, what was the turning point from your experience? Why aren't we continuing to try to push ourselves in the tech space then? I think
2: there are a lot of brilliant engineers in the region. Um, you know, Cincinnati's all, Cincinnati's great, but you go you know thirty miles up the road to Dayton, the number of yeah. PhDs that are aggregated around Wright Patterson Air Force Base and the Air Force Research Laboratories. Yeah, it's
1: one off to begin with. Yeah, I
2: mean it's very unprecedented the level of academic and engineering talent that exists in this region. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's amazing, actually. Um, you know we've got good old fundamental Midwestern values, right? Conservative, you know, consumer products, banking, um, and and I think that the, the culture of fear of risk certainly has at at the you know the corporate level, especially. Mm-hmm. I I think that uh, you know what's the old adage that the guy out front's got you know targets on his back. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, nobody wants yeah. to go first.
2: You know, it's no, like we yeah. kind of come up with our own version of it after the fact, after, you know, nobody else goes to jail or you know, nobody else gets sued. Or, Let
1: somebody else get, yeah. yeah, dive in first. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and I think to a certain degree, um, you know, when it comes to the engineering side, I've observed that we teach in our university, and I love our regional universities. Don't get me wrong, this is not disparaging, mm-hmm. but to be a great engineer, um, incremental improvements of 10% are awesome that's okay yeah career builders right nobody's mm-hmm. teaching the idea let's go put the dent in the universe you know the proverbial mm. you know pie in the sky moonshot right you go to silicon valley or austin or you know miami you know, where people are like not afraid of what seems to be outlandish
0: ideas The
1: unknown it's almost well, it yeah. sounds like it's entering that unknown
0: well like, miami just came out of nowhere during the pandemic <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know I gotta like hand it, it, to, well i mean
2: <laughs> miami was a cool town to begin with but um i gotta hand it to mayor suarez i mean he has done a bang up job down there for their economic development and um you know, I don't want to get into the, you know, the taxes and all that because that butts up against, you know, political stuff.
0: And, you know, some people like high yeah. taxes. We might sometimes. talk about that later about what Ohio and Cincinnati could be oh, doing better. But, yeah. but-, but, but
1: honestly, I think that's even worth talking about now while we're still on the subject mm. of, of Cincinnati and where we stand in the larger scope of other cities and, and competition. I mean, from your perspective, Michael, what is something that we could be doing better to improve our chances of competing at a higher level?
2: Wow. Uh, Where to begin? Because Ohio is kind of a very, you know, they're not at the top, but they're certainly in the top 10 states losing population. People Mm -hmm. are simply leaving. Um, We are an outflow state right now. Um, It is not a business friendly state when it comes to taxes. And, um, you know. You could argue quality of life is okay, but I think it's more okay with families with kids than it's okay for young single people. Columbus is cool, right? And I guess there are maybe even some pockets of Cincinnati, but by and large, Cincinnati is not even considered a singles town by any stretch. You know, people are going to go to Austin. They're going to go to
1: who reach into the choir.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't even begin to imagine. You know, I'm an old married guy, but uh, you know. It's just that that whole you know quality and you know, you know call it quality of life because it's not a quality of life issue. I mean, I'm married with kids and you know things mm-hmm. things are okay. Winter sucks, um, but
0: uh,
1: yeah, yeah, you know, could be worse though.
0: It certainly could be worse. I mean, global warming might benefit Cincinnati. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we could have beachfront front
1: property in no time. Yeah,
0: but don't cancel us people on that comment. <laughs>
2: And, and, the, and the other part of Cincinnati, Cincinnati tends to be, at least in my experience, and I've spent most of my adult career in Cincinnati, um, you know, i got a huge business network here, and, you, you know, but Cincy, you know, the, you don't want to call it parochial so much, but it kind of is. It, it's almost mm-hmm. Game of Thrones tribal to a certain degree. mm mm-hmm. If you look at who the business communities are centered around, the old blue book families, and you know, and I'm not calling yeah, there's anybody. There's a lot of history. Yes, it. Yeah. very yeah. much so, and you know, it's it's a it's a big small town. I mean, you've got like the corporates, you know, P and G's its own tribe, right? I mean, you know, the Kroger mm-hmm. tribe, but but then you've got the old line families. You know, you've got some very prominent families and you look at you know the composition of like the cincinnati business committee and you know who the players are and you know if you're not um say birthed by the right lineage
1: it's tough to break through
2: it's tough to break in right so
1: so, okay but this is why i asked this question because if we had this hypothetical switch situation that we could change cincinnati or flip a switch or ohio all of ohio included right How, what what changes could we make that are actually tangible that maybe other cities whether it's policies etc that could maybe help us out from your perspective and your experience um, that has been beneficial for your business
2: people talk about there being a dearth of capital here and that's just rank bs I mean, Ohio is Mm -hmm. one of the wealthiest states per capita in the United States. There's a lot of money from here. In fact, there's so much money from here. Did you know there's a Cincinnati club, Cincinnatian club in the Hamptons? What? Yeah.
1: Oh, not in the – I did not know that oh, yeah, about the Hamptons. Yeah, like, you, I know there's a
2: Cincinnati no, club. <laughs> no, at one time Cincinnati was for a very long time. I think up until the early 80s, the wealthiest city per capita in the United States. We had like 17 insurance companies, know, 11 or 12 banks that were domiciled in yeah. Cincinnati. So the, the vastness of the the, the capital and the, 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 the wealth that's in private hands exists. Um. But people are certainly not going to put their money in a tax disadvantaged, uh, you know, situation when given choices, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think that that is absolutely working against the 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 businesses in this state right now. Uh, even so much so that you look, you know, you can kind of tell even folks from Cincinnati who's getting ready to exit. What do they do? Just before the liquidity event, <laughs> they move to Florida, zero percent state yeah. ten, state income tax, right? So I can at least shelter that piece of it right yeah yeah so you know i i don't want to say taxes is all of it but it's certainly very cumbersome um you know and you know the folks at jobs ohio and you know everybody's trying to promote things but you know i asked over and over i've asked this basic simple question how can we support you and i'm like just amplify what we're already doing so Mm. what
1: does that look like
2: Share my tweets on social media. If you
1: you know, like, I don't don't know.
0: (laughs) Go follow Michael Hyatt. Whatever. (laughs) I mean,
1: it's like. But I think it's a valid question to ask. Like,
2: there for a while, when you know, I I I don't want to say you know, startup sensei has certainly changed. It has evolved. COVID didn't help. The pandemic certainly Mm -hmm. has has impacted it. But if you contrast where startup sensei was and. 2017 2018 with where it is at today there has certainly been a um it's it's almost unfair to say a radical departure from the heyday right it was like it's all there was like this peak startup sensing thing and i and And does, go ahead
1: no i i'm just thinking about you know what then what are the types of startups that are coming out of, you know, startup Cincy and some of these incubator, um, opportunities? And are we focusing on the wrong types of start- startups here? Huh. Or are we just not equipped? To grow them and foster I mean, them, the
2: community was really bubbling and thriving. People were supporting each other. Um, what's interesting, though, is the startups even back in that era that were making big splashes were not startups that came up through the incubator and the accelerator system in mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. You know, some of them kind of came in later. You had, you know, examples Spatial. You know, I guess kind of did okay there for a while. Uh, mm. Rodney, uh, you know, those guys did okay with the um, Listener and you know, but but they were in a way almost kind of independent. You know, so while the, they
1: weren't totally reliant on,
2: yeah. And if you go back to the original, um, you know, even Brad Feld's book, um, you know, that kind of spawned the whole notion of a startup community, and you know, what launched tech stars, and uh, you know, it's really of the founders, by the founders, for the founders, and then everybody else was sort of necessary, but in a support sort of role. And, mm-hmm. and I see, you know, the corporate sponsors with their corporate directives and corporate checkbooks, you know, really kind of came in and started driving the agenda. And all of a sudden, it was no longer about the founders and about the entrepreneurship and the community. It was really about whatever the, the mandate was from, a, mm. you know, the board level of, you know, we're going to write you a check and here's some corporate venture money.
0: I guess, question for you then, it sounds like you're totally supportive of a natural grassroots movement here in Cincinnati and having personally lived, uh, you know, kind of all over Ohio and, you know, have experienced, you know, ecosystems in Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Columbus, uh, now, uh, they do have that grassroots movement, um, and they had you know start since he was that top down approach. I personally think that was a great start to like light the fire and get things started. But you know, after at some point in time, startups and start founders need to kind of just do it themselves. Yes. Why do you think we're struggling here in Cincinnati to see kind of a big grassroots movement to doing something?
2: Well, my, my attitude always was, of course, I ran Founder Institute, right? If you remember, Patrick, I was the managing director of, you know, the Cincinnati chapter of FI, and which is the world's largest pre-seed accelerator program, um, and so we had three great cohorts, graduated 27 companies into the ecosystem, and, um, you know, it was really kind of working with founders and funding and... You know, Is that that same time that 10 XTS was sort of bubbling? How do you democratize investment investing capital? How do you make it easier for uh, startups to, to, to raise money? At the time, the ICO craze was happening. And gosh, you got, you know, billions of dollars pouring into tchotchke magic beans that are meaningless beanie babies, you know, over here. And then, <laughs> oh, th- my teeth. gosh, yes. And, you know, these ICOs, which, you know, ICOs weren't all bad. I mean, they, they kind of hurt the technology for, for a while because of the iceberg of the regulatory and all that. But But it proved a couple of hypotheses. Number one, global capital mobility. Right. I can move money Mm -hmm. globally across a border, which is blockchain remittances, crypto payments and all these Mm -hmm. things. Right. So instantaneously or near term, you know, nearly instantaneously, you click a button and value moves into, you know, a wallet to wallet. You know, money moves Mm -hmm. around quickly
1: and it's international,
2: international borders don't matter. Um, The other thing Mm -hmm. that it proved was the demand for participation in early stage technology projects, because I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of people understand that is. Growth, wealth, opportunity, and because of our accreditation laws in the United States and the various regulations, uh, which I've harped on in D.C., uh, but you know, it's it's locked a lot of the average person out. Now, I I mean, I was at the Congressional Roundtable hearing in 2018, um, you know, when. Uh, Soto, Emmer, and uh, Davidson had their uh, cryptocurrency, um, you know, big roundtable for the industry. And I'm there with State Street and NASDAQ and DTCC and Kraken Exchange and, you know, all all of the major players in Little Ohio's, you know, like, hey, guys, who are you? (laughs) But but my point was, uh, you know, one of the points that I emphasized during that hearing was that of capital formation where the regulators say, oh gosh, you know, can't take any risks. Can't, you know, it's like, Ooh, risky, 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 poor people shouldn't put their money into risky, you know, risky ventures yet. You know, mm-hmm. anybody can go grab a thousand bucks out of grandma's purse and run out of the trailer park down to the speedway and buy scratch off tickets and, you know, not even show an ID. Yeah. Very
0: true.
2: <laughs> so if that's your comparison, your wealth strategy, you know, like eh you know, can I run a little micro VC here, guys, and, you know, invest a few hundred bucks here and there. So, you know, you know, back to the point of, you know, Cincinnati, you know, in, in the ecosystem, you know, the convergence of the funding and the participation at that time, it very much was more organic. You know, it's like there was this framework, mm. but then it got filled in, right? Every night of the week there were two or three startup Organization parties, or I mean, literally, you know, there for a while it was mm-hmm. really bumping. We had FounderCon, you know, tech, tech stars came to town and held their global, you know, alumni event. And, mm-hmm. and, um, I mean, it was really why
1: did it stop?
2: I think that there was a radical change in mothership management and that really mm-hmm. there was a ripple effect. And, and I think the change was necessary, uh, to a certain degree because certainly the organization that we're talking about that shall remain unnamed, um, mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they they were experiencing growth pains of their own, right? Like every startup, you yeah, start happens. It happens. Out, it happens. Yeah. Natural. It does. Yeah, and even that was a startup, right? To the truest sense of the the term, because you hire great people and you empower them to go and do their thing, right?
1: But then, are we also super reliant on one organization to to fuel our startup culture? I mean, it, that's what it kind of sounds like that you're saying, and that no, doesn't they also did. sound. I, I, there was a so, lot that. Criticism. Also, doesn't sound like a good. Good outlet for us either. I, I agree. You want-
2: but I don't see that that's what was happening back then. Mm-hmm. They were really the mortar yeah. between the bricks, the connective tissue, because there were other mortar, for example, right? You know, Alan yeah. and those yeah, guys, yeah. you know, great job. Um, HCDC, you know, everybody still, you know, even at the university level, right? You know, the universities, NKU had their incubator and, you know, uh, you know UpTech at the time over in northern Kentucky. And they were just kind of coalescing around this ecosystem. And I think that the shift that happened, in retrospect, I look back. <clears throat> anytime you change leadership, there's a lot of fear and trepidation of the, yeah, you know, the lieutenants are all like,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> am, yeah, because then you're you're shifting you're shifting power dynamics,
2: yeah. Sure, and everybody knows when you change you know leadership, first thing a good new leader does is come in and behead somebody, right? <laughs> it's just.
1: Fortune. The token beheading, <laughs> it's gonna come,
2: <laughs> and nobody wanted to be the you know the the the, the donor of the the cranium. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you had a uh, you know a cultural change, just endemic to the, the the leadership change. Now, a lot of I think you know that organization as a startup. When you look at startups in general, you know you start out, you hire great people. It's you know a community development effort a lot of siloed individual activity, right? People come Mm -hmm. up with their own systems and ways of doing things. And then as you grow and expand and, you know, start to institutionalize as an organization, a lot of times those early operating protocols are not compatible with someone else in the company's operating protocol, right? And so there's this Mm -hmm. sort of period of time, yeah, where the organization goes through this friction, you know, it's the old, the team, you know, Forming, norming, storming, and performing, right? You know, yeah, you have that, yeah. Um, rock
1: the boat. <laughs>
2: yeah, you have that, that evolution of the organization. And I, I think mm-hmm. even the startup organizations themselves were kind of experiencing that. Um, but there are, you know, there are certainly persistencies that are still throughout. I mean, organizations are still rocking it, doing awesome things. And
1: mm-hmm. I don't want any of
2: this to, you know, this is not disparaging by any stretch of the imagination right well
1: and i think it's also important to to remind people you know these conversations it's not always you know butterflies sunshines and you know roses all the time so but it's important (laughs) yeah yeah and unicorns it's but it's important to have the conversations uh where some of our weak points are in order for us to make you know improvements
0: which i think Switching gears here, that's kind of what you realized with 10 XTS. There's an opportunity to democratize, I guess, generational wealth building. And that's kind of one of the reasons why you started it, it sounds like. Can you go into, I guess, that mission, why that kind of was your mission? uh, And, you know, what are you doing today, I guess, to continue to build on that mission? Sure.
2: Yeah, one, one thing I want to add real quick. Before I fully slide into that. Um, We also don't have a lot of seasoned entrepreneurs that have gone through the entire process of exit Mm. and stayed home. Like
1: the shift. Is that a cultural thing? Again, kind of like you mentioned before, because you kind of sparked a thought in my head, too, when you were talking about the universities and you're talking about our culture here in general. And is that just because our culture breeds that mindset?
2: I don't know if it breeds it. It's just they leave. Right. I mean, if you've been through an entire exit and you leave, that mentorship is kind of gone. How do we get
1: people to stay? Or is it a lost cause?
0: That sounds like a bigger problem outside of the yeah, startup. That's like BG a McKinsey report. Right?
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I need Michael. I need sounds you to an answer oyster. all of Cincinnati's business problems in this podcast, please. <laughs> you didn't know that's what you signed up for. <laughs> wow! I'm, I'm...
0: <laughs> it's business
2: culture over so there. <laughs> everything. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to keep them home. But if you look at the mentorship opportunities that are available you know for seasoned folks that have been there done that um you know bootstrapped a company all the way through an exit and to retain that leadership talent that's why silicon valley became silicon valley right it was the early entrepreneurs that doubled down and continued to reinvest and grow and mentor you know whole new generations of entrepreneurs and we just we're still kind of we can never get past that first generation retention, right? The first, second generation of entrepreneurs to keep them at home. So.
1: Yeah, which is sad.
2: Uh, the beaches in Cincinnati suck, but, you know, I I know. again. <laughs> yeah,
1: again, those Ohio, Ohio River lobsters <laughs> coming in clutch.
2: <laughs> so back to the democratization of capital, um, you know, certainly. Capital access is a major piece of it. It is very complex to take a company through any form of fundraising, capitalization. Lots of competencies are required. Um, And back to the ICO thing that I I, I pointed out was – you know, it was like there was free manna from heaven at one point. You know, money was just flowing into <laughs> projects, right? What was the the iced tea beverage company that changed their name to, you know, blockchain tea or whatever, and all oh, of a sudden yeah. their over-the-counter stock, like, went up 700% or something crazy like that. <laughs> but um, I think that, uh, you know, being able to create a more efficient capital market for both primary offerings and then ultimately... Uh, more efficient and easier path to secondary market liquidity. Those are two really big conversations for founders. Mm. And a lot of founders, they focus so much on raising money. They don't ever think about, well, how do my investors get their money back? How do I get my money back mm-hmm. out of it? Right? Always, oh, I need this investment yeah. dollar and I need to get raise this money. And it's like, OK, well, to really get they, that investment.
0: They leave dollar. that to the lawyers.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the, the real question that they should be answering is, sure, I'm going to give you a rate of return. But here's how you're going to get your money back out. right? And that mm-hmm. path to liquidity, everyone assumes, well, I'm going to get acquired or I go public or whatever. But there's many different paths to that secondary market liquidity people just don't know about right even before blockchain. what are some of those well you have secondary markets that emerged you know uh, you know from an electronic trading standpoint like shares post uh, even before blockchain right if I'm if I'm an mm-hmm. employee of a startup company and I'm my company hasn't gone public yet and I'm sitting on some restricted stock units or you know some you know options or whatever you know how do I actually Turn that into cash. How do I find buyers for those things in a regulatory compliant fashion? What are the rules around those things? So, you know, as we started to peel the onions, starting with startup capital formation, led us immediately, obviously, into venture funds. And you know, okay, well, mm-hmm. let's talk about the problems with venture funds, right? Well, long horizons, right? Ten-year partnership, um, you know, life cycles, and. You know, if an LP wants early liquidity, you know, what are all of the, you know, the trappings around that? And then you got the portfolio issues like, oh, I'm stuck with a bunch of preferred stock in this dog of a company. It would be nice to be able to, you know, interchange, you know, change out portfolio. What if I had a way to dispose of my fractional ownership of, you know, this portfolio company? And. You know, maybe get a better performing asset or something. You know, so so that's kind of how it really led us down that customer discovery journey, which we we spent years in customer discovery because it was so nascent.
1: Yeah, can you kind of elaborate on that even just a little bit more?
2: Um, we pounded on a lot of doors at a lot of different layers across yeah. all capital markets. I mean, we've talked you know to hundreds of VCs. Mm -hmm. pe funds um fixed income desks right i mean we spent Mm -hmm. a year exploring the municipal bond market right um banks credit unions broker dealers exchanges
0: i guess getting back to that right like you knew this was a problem getting liquidity events early on and then i guess like i'm still trying to figure out when did you like realize that I'm assuming partially from your nerdy background, um, <laughs> that like, you're like, oh, blockchain's perfect for this, to solve this I problem. mean, for me,
2: I always saw blockchain even 2013, 2014. It was you know, certainly mm-hmm. a novel form of tracking transactions and value, but I saw it as a just um, you know, an amazing single source of truth, right? It mm-hmm. was the system of record, not unlike a public record system. Mm -hmm. And I spent a decade Mm -hmm. in public record systems, Hamilton County, Ohio, courtclerk.org, right? You know, it's like literally tracking records so that you have an immutable single place where the record that exists can be accessed by anybody. And the record Mm -hmm. that you're looking at is the gospel, right? It is. Yeah, a
1: lot of transparency.
2: That's right.
1: So. Do you think there are I mean I even think of myself included, right? I have been educate I've been trying to educate myself as much as I can on blockchain, cryptocurrency or pre, like our previous episode over the last year or two. Um I'm by far no expert in the matter and not an engineer like you, but you know, I can't be the only one that's kind of late to this train and what is your perspective on people who are still trying to learn the path? And foundation of blockchain because I imagine it's still very confusing for people.
2: It is. Um, in the future, I anticipate that blockchain will be as about as novel as email is, right? Or just the mm-hmm. inner you know, connecting to the internet. How so, far
1: into the future, if you had to put a prediction? Probably
2: not that far into the future because I think the focus mm. on Tokens and all—it's just a unit of account. It's just a ledger. Mm -hmm. It's—it's a fancy, Mm -hmm. expensive spreadsheet. Literally. Yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't want a good way to put it. Yeah, I don't want (laughs) to take the pizzazz away from it. But it's—it's a foundational technology. You know, it's like. Yeah. I see all these. I'm blockchain certified, and I'm like, okay cool that's like saying you're so you can do microsoft excel right (laughs) you're certified in http you know cool (laughs) you know like um that this is that novelty i i don't think will persist as it becomes more and more Mm -hmm. mainstream the technology conversation is going to settle into where it really should be which is infrastructure right you don't care it's blockchain you don't all you care about is yep. the fact that you own shares of stock in a company whether mm-hmm. that's a token mm-hmm. whether that's mm-hmm. a cap table entry in carta you don't care about that what you want is your investment return Right? how mm-hmm. that's tracked mm-hmm. and how that gets paid and transferred and all that this, nobody, nobody cares mm-hmm. from an end user experience standpoint and yeah. you know it's the same with the internet you know because you know i went through the beginning days of the internet as we transitioned from these dial-up bulletin board systems and <laughs> nntp and then you had the modems that sounded like you know
1: see this is this is blockchain blockchain needs something like how uh you've got mail like aol that's a, everybody that's I at that point literally, time. Allie, I love yeah.
2: that's, that's <laughs> literally
1: you've got mail blockchain what, what's gonna be the sound AOL of blockchain moment. right
0: there
2: it, it it hasn't had its aol moment
0: Right. Yeah. Maybe that's what we need a coin. We need a coin and a sound for blockchain. Right?
2: Yeah, there it, this, there were We need a jingle. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. It's the
0: sound <laughs> of a coin clinking, right? <laughs> clink clink.
1: Yeah. I
2: don't know. But you know, there there was this point where, you know, all the nerds, the engineers, you know, we were all hacking away on our home soldered CPM machines and early PCs and and, you know, connecting our acoustic couplers because you used to have to like dial your regular phone. And then put it on this device that had a microphone and a speaker, and it's called an acoustic coupler, and you literally dialed the number and then put it on the handset and then pressed a button to put it in listen and receive mode. And that's when oh it would goodness. make all these yeah. <laughs> sounds, and you had these dialing strings that you would have to put in so it would pause the bitrate or you know whatever, right? Yeah and it was not user friendly. I mean when you had to go go yeah, yeah, through yeah. 20 steps of pure command line typing to to <laughs> just simply make a connection to the internet, right? And then
1: It's a little desperate. Was,
2: yeah, well if you're a nerd, it was like just part of the program, right? Um, yeah. and the nerds, you know, it's like the whole ha-ha, I know how to do this and no one else does, yeah. you know, it's the ner- yeah. the nerd arrogance thing. But um, and I say that as a nerd, so you know, take it from you
1: from your own it, from personal my, experience. Sure, yeah. you know,
2: I, you know, I did fellow pro- pocket protector, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> owner. Yeah, EQ didn't come along for me until later, right? So, um, but then AOL made it easy, right? Yeah, they sent a disk. You plugged it in, pressed a button. You connected the internet, right? You made the user experience very easy, seamless. You didn't care about dialing strings or baud rates or, you know, all of these things. It just worked.
1: Yeah.
0: We're
2: not there yet, right?
1: I mean, it's
0: getting there, right? I think that springs up my next question in the sense you probably have had to overcome a lot of hurdles, (laughs) whether that's building out the infrastructure for you to build out your business because it's still relatively novel when you started. Uh, So you had to build out, you know, hardware, software, you name it. You also had to build out a team, uh, which it's probably hard to find people super educated in the space, especially maybe here in Cincinnati, not a knock to Cincinnati, but we're Mm -hmm. behind the times a little bit. As we've talked about. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So those are probably some of the obstacles. And then on the getting customer side, you probably had to do a lot of educating, So can you dive in to all those obstacles that you had to overcome?
2: Yeah, it certainly was a slog, right? Um, Now, I had a little bit of an advantage because at Founder Institute, just the way the program worked, Mm -hmm. the thing that makes Founder Institute so cool is the behavioral assessment of the application of getting Mm -hmm. in, right? It has Mm -hmm. the highest success rate of prediction for entrepreneurial success
1: oh, a, so what what, what did that into so what type of a, an assessment did you go through
2: well the the founders when you apply to get in it's a very detailed and um, would call it yeah. i mean it's a behavioral assessment it's certainly an intelligence it's like a myers-briggs
0: Briggs myers-briggs or... disk
2: analysis just it's and the predictive and, and Adeo resti the founder of founder institute, you know he he developed it in conjunction with UPenn. You know Adeo was Elon Musk's roommate at UPenn, so that's how oh, wow. you know the you know, Adeo certainly has had successes of his own. While he's certainly not Elon, um, Elon will take his call as roommates, but
1: um, yeah,
0: <laughs>
2: but. You know, They they did a lot of research into the behavioral uh, aspects of entrepreneurship and came up with what over time proved out over thousands and thousands of companies with a robust historical data set, uh, an amazing predictive model for the outcome of success uh, for founders. The program itself, it was not a course, right? It was a behavioral Mm -hmm. experiment because it was designed to simulate the stresses that you're going to go through starting a company as a side hustle.
1: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I mean,
2: we ran 14 weeks of bloodbath boot camp.
1: Ooh, yeah! Dive into that. What was that like? What what? Ooh, it, what type of exercises? Well, I
2: mean, it's tough. You know, like holidays. And, I mean, you, you'd wake up in the morning and get an email assignment from your managing director on you know Thanksgiving Day. Right? You, oh, you don't get this in within 24. Like hours. the
1: Macy's Day Parade. Sorry, Santa. Yeah, but...
2: it was just like really. It's, it, it, <laughs> and and you know it, it's literally the the whole approaches is, is if you can't if you can't deal if you're going to rationalize the stresses and skip out on founder institute as a behavioral uh, experiment as a program mm-hmm. you're never going to be as focused and adamant about your success that you need to be to
0: start a company and serve a client and grow
1: yeah that that mental strength
0: what hold on. I want to kind of go back to, I guess, the original question before we went down this tangent of, so clearly, did you ever take that assessment to, to. and then you realized that you had the mental toughness, fitness to overcome the obstacles that, you know, obviously you had to overcome and that gave you a benefit, right? Well,
2: this wasn't my first trip to the rodeo from the entrepreneurship side. So, I mean, I already knew, um, and I've, you know... To talk to my mother, apparently when I was about two years old, she punished me and put me in the chair and said, sit there until I tell you, you can get up. And she left the room and she came back in the room and I was down off of the chair, but I had my finger on it. So technically I was in the chair, (laughs) right? Um,
1: Beating the system.
2: (laughs) The tenacity and the beating the system side of it, you know, was just, you know, really just the mental fortitude of. Being Mm -hmm. so narrowly focused and earnest about achieving your goal, relentless Mm. pursuit of the goal. I mean, just absolute. And then Mm. the rest of it is really, you know, how do you, how do you construct your life in such a way that's compatible with that, right? You you hear about entrepreneur divorces, you know, she wants to go out and party with her friends on Friday night. Well, sorry, honey, I got five things to do for my client kind of a thing, right?
1: So how do you make that work? especially from a family personal dynamic
2: uh well i married an amazing woman who's been with me now yeah. for 25 some odd years um, shout out to the misses. shout yeah. out to the missus she's uh awesome. you know certainly incredibly supportive and uh you know we took the ride together a long time ago i didn't have two yeah. nickels to rub together when we met so you know it was kind of mm-hmm. like hey let's have fun let's grow old together <laughs> see where this goes <laughs> see where this crazy thing goes so a couple <laughs> kids later a quarter of a century later you know it's still that sounds yeah. like great dating advice <laughs> <laughs> let's just see where this goes. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, swipe right uh, but uh, um you, you know it, it really does come down to the compatibility with the rest of your life to become mm-hmm. successful as an entrepreneur because it it that you are married to your company, you're married to your team, you're married to your co-founders, you know, and, and I practice servant leadership strongly, right? I mean, I'm there to support my team and, you know, get them the resources that they need, promote them, push them. And I think that that's even harder than being a top-down, you know, a commandeering CEO, you know,
1: Becoming an entrepreneur, you really have to be dialed and focused into what your mission is. But I also think about a lot of the other conversations that we've had and adaptability is really important as well. So when you went into 10 XTS, did you know specifically that where it is now, that this is where this is the the future and the path and the focus that you wanted? Or did you have to adapt at all to your mission?
2: Um, we've adapted a lot in terms of uh, how we get there. But I go back and I read the first version of the formal white paper that we wrote. Yeah,
1: your, your mission statement. It
2: is dead. I mean, it, we, we've not deviated from it at all. I mean, when it comes to
1: That's the benefit. We're
2: going to have to like, link that in the show notes somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we literally, it was a function of blockchain is an amazing system of record and bring efficiency to these markets uh the challenge for us and the challenge for blockchain in general is you know a lot of startups you know even silicon valley the hbo show right poked a lot of fun at you know startups in general and if you guys remember the hot dog app you know
1: Okay. No, I'm already giggling about was, it just by the name. He <laughs> was writing an app
2: that detected whether a photo was or wasn't a hot dog. So it either oh came back, God. "Oh, this is a hot that dog." That is not a. Hot that's
1: dog. a <laughs> very dangerous <laughs> app. To-
2: uh, I leave it to. I didn't remember, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you'll have to go back to the Silicon oh, sorry, Valley that's... show. Yeah, and yeah, you, know, you can Google it. You know, hot dog app. And, <laughs> and so, hot dog app kind of became even in the startup community, the label that myself and Fulkert, Eric Fulkert, you know, are one of our yeah. other directors at Founder Institute, also in the Star Sensei community still. He's with Pay Theory now, with Brad Howeller. Um, but, um, you know, Fulkert, now we called it the hot dog app, right? Because it was just yeah. this dumb little app and it only did one thing, right? And people don't, people don't develop platforms anymore. I came up in an era of computing where <clears throat> The big dent in the universe play was a platform Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that could be used and adapted by many different people to do a lot of different things, like operating Mm -hmm. systems, right? For example, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, You know, now startups, everybody wants you know uh, nice and tidy pro formas with you know very tight SaaS customer acquisition costs and LTVs and ARRs and net promoter scores and you know you know all these. Very narrow models around a tiny little app that in my mind represents more or less a group of features. It's not even a product, right? So that's, it's, Everything
1: is so niche these days. Yeah, niche is that word that gets tossed out all the time.
2: Yeah, nobody builds platforms. Well, blockchain is a platform, yeah. right? And, and the real yeah. benefit yeah. of blockchain, but also one of the big challenges is because you're talking about a single source of truth, the value proposition is different for different users of that same mm-hmm. common data.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: So I might use it for this instance. Someone else may use it for this particular use case. It's the same data. We may even be interrelated in some form of a value chain where our our organizations are interconnected, which is what we do, right? For capital markets, Mm -hmm. we connect. Exchanges and alternative trading systems that are licensed to trade in securities. We connect the custodians, the banks that you know, custody these securities, the transfer agent, the issuers, the investors. So you have multiple simultaneous value propositions. It's very difficult for people to get their head around the fact that you have to meet not just one val prop for product market fit. You've got to meet multiple, multiple. simultaneous.
0: But I guess what's next then, right? Like, are you going to look at those other industries, or you know, do you think capital markets? There's just so much work to be done. Like, you're going to be spending the next twenty mm-hmm. years <laughs> trying to. Well, I'm 51, solve so the problem. next
2: 20 years for me hopefully <laughs> involves a little bit of a different conversation. But um,
1: beaches, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: tax preferred climates. Um, uh, <clears throat> I think that it's if we're if we're truly successful at what we're doing, just in our current narrow niche, Um, I have one big competitor for what we do. And I only recently have come out and said it because a lot of people think, well, you guys do tokenization, so don't you compete with Securitize or even in Cincinnati, a cr- you know, accrue, right? Oh, you guys tokenize, right? Machine.
0: They came on. Our, our yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I love <laughs> those guys. I love anybody
2: that's bringing <laughs> traditional assets into the tokenized yeah. securities ecosystem, right? Um, the, 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 the opportunity is so vast. You know, mm-hmm. there's just so many trillions and trillions of dollars of assets to try to pick and choose single you know, winners and losers right now. It's just absurd. Yeah. Right. The
1: playing field is huge.
2: But we are market infrastructure. Now, we do tokenization of assets on the front end. But I would rather partner with those front-end tokenization providers because we're really the market infrastructure that connects to the other exchanges, the other ATSs. And in the realm of market infrastructure, um, I have one big giant competitor that is a monopoly in settlement clearing: Depository Trust Corporation (DTC). Mm. Mm. Don't I most don't know that. Most people <laughs> don't. But you know what? They clear ninety percent of all U.S. markets. They are a de facto monopoly, privately held, owned by J.P. State Street, BNY Mellon, right? And it's a big giant buildings and buildings full of old IBM System 36s running COBOL, but they are the monopoly. Why it's escaped antitrust, I don't know. I've I've asked... Congress. Sir, so are, yeah,
0: are you going to start lobbying uh, right here on this podcast? To no, I've it, already uh, been a and, you know, Break
1: it down. <laughs> Split it up. <laughs> I mean,
0: I, I do a lot of policy. In fact, I'll be in D.C. next week speaking at
2: the National Press Club and then immediately go into the SEC to have another, you know, sit down with the commissioners. Um, mm-hmm. But it really is a Department of Justice conversation when you understand the magnitude of depository trust. And if there's anything that needs decentralized, it's the ownership of your data as a securities issuer, and for your investors, right? And
1: and do you think DC under really understands that?
0: Mm. I mean, just watch the news. It sounds like they don't even understand. And I take all of that with (laughs) a grain
1: of salt. But if you're actually in there and you're having conversations with these people are they are they willing to listen are they yeah, willing to work are. with you yeah
2: very very much yeah. so because we preach regulatory compliance so we're like seen as yeah. the, the good guys when it comes to the government side of the fits
1: yeah.
2: not yeah. so much when i go to like crypto conferences right we're in bed with the oh those guys are in bed with the man right <laughs> oh, they're the compliance guys <laughs> Boo! <laughs> so, but, awesome. but when we talk to you know folks in dc I mean, First of all, m- most people even in capital markets don't even know who DTCC – I mean they might know who they are, but they don't know how they work. They don't know what they do, mm-hmm. and they certainly don't know why they are a de facto monopoly for clearing and yeah. settlement in the industry. And if we're going to bring these efficiencies, it's going to ultimately be a revolution – of the issuers. If I'm selling securities in my company or general partners in a fund, you know, bringing on LPs, it starts mm-hmm. all the way at the very beginning of the genesis of that asset when I'm first forming that company or, you know, you know, raising capital is what turns it into a valuable asset, right? Otherwise, it's just contracts on paper. But mm-hmm. but it it's going to have to start as a revolution in how issuers decide they want to own and control their data throughout the entire life cycle of the asset itself. Because right now, there's there's this idea that, well, because it's blockchain, everything's hunky-dory, and it's really not, right? You might um, work with a broker-dealer, an exchange, or whatever, and you might have a token even. But getting non-token information out of those walled gardens is just as hard as Wall Street 1.0. And so decentralizing clearing, decentralizing DTCC, that's our mission.
1: Just so ironic to what.
0: Because is. isn't blockchain supposed
1: to be decentralized? Yes, already? yeah, of course. <laughs> right? Isn't that a little hypocritical the whole situation? But yeah. Well,
2: and even when you see DTCC finally formalized their digital securities management platform at the end of the year last year, we're we're all chuckling like, <laughs> but they had Project Whitney going for a couple of years that we were monitoring closely, and they announced their DSM platform because now they're going to decentralize clearing, and we're like, well, why would the centralized monopoly authority? now kill the goose that lays the golden egg because you got to remember they're the ones in control of the trade plus however long it takes time to settle so they're front Mm -hmm. running and got all of the cash float of literally billions and billions of dollars daily that are in float between buy sell settlement of that security well they're not going to turn loose of that to go for instantaneous atomic settlement of a securities transaction because they're going to lose the overnight rate on those floats literally billions of dollars right so when they announced the DSM and were finally formalized the digital securities management platform, aside from the absurdity that, you know, the centralized monopoly is now going to decentralize and kill their goose that lays the golden egg. Ha <laughs> ha right <laughs> they said, Well, the technology will enable us to go from T plus two settlement to T plus one. Trade plus two days, trade plus one day. Mm -hmm. So we're going to bring efficiencies and reduce that time that it takes when you sell a share of Apple to when you actually get your money and it all settles up. up. We're going to reduce it to one day and everybody's scratching their heads like, well, wait a second. Bitcoin settles in a matter of minutes, right? Why, why, why tell me again why it's so I actually, it was funny because back in December when I was in, uh, I was speaking at a conference in Puerto Rico, uh, Commissioner Hester Peirce was down there from the SEC, one of the five SEC commissioners and, um, She walks in and saw me sitting there. She's like, I imagine you got a complicated question for me, don't you? And I was like, yes, yes, ma'am. You know me all too well. Um, So I got the microphone and I'm like, "Uh, Commissioner, um, when is the SEC going to actually approach the topic of true T plus zero settlement for securities and trading? And, you know, Mm -hmm. she's like. This is a complicated conversation. Can I get well, with you separately on this? Yeah, no, <laughs> no one has
0: an answer for you. Yeah, <laughs> why why does it take so long? Like especially, you know, I'm thinking, you know, it's 2022. Robin Hood is out there. People are investing in Bitcoin, Solana, Ethereum, cryptocurrencies, and they can just get their money like that instantaneously. Well, but technically even
2: Robinhood, if you buy and sell shares of stock on Robinhood, the time when you accept that trade and you actually make the trade to when it settles and you truly Mm -hmm. get your money. Now, the the broker may advance you that money, but that trade hasn't Mm. actually settled. So that that's the thing is, is it literally still takes 2 days worth of settlement and that's because of the centralized clearing and their way of doing things mm-hmm. but then also because they're 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 enjoying 2 days of cash float of billions of dollars of trades mm-hmm. that have not actually settled.
0: So hmm. do you think making it more I guess competitive the industry of you know digital securities? And the back end, do you think that's going to allow for people to get their money, money quicker?
2: Yes, I, I, I think that liquidity will happen a lot faster. I, I saw an interesting uh, poll. I'm trying to remember who it was. Um, might have been Forbes. They did a poll of 18 to 34 – or um, yeah, it was 18 to 34 demographic. Would rather trade in a synthetic token-based derivative of a stock than the actual stock itself because of the Hmm. true instantaneous settlement as opposed to the t plus two time that it takes to truly get the liquidated position
0: i believe that you brought up earlier in our conversation founders should have their exit and liquidity event in mind from the very beginning because that's kind of like their value proposition to investors in their platform for 10 xts what is that exit event or liquidity event look like
2: well we've always known it'll be one of three things right i mean either mm-hmm. it'll be a strategic acquisition for a very large institutional player that wants exposure to the emergent world of decentralized capital markets from a strategic standpoint mm-hmm. or we'll eat our own dog food and we'll tokenize and go through some <laughs> form of public quasi-public offering of a digital security I mean, the infrastructure is already there. I mean, technically, we've already done it. Um, You can
0: do it for yourselves. (laughs) Yeah, we would just do it for
2: ourselves and list and trade on, you know, some secondary, you know, on on ATSs and secondary markets. Hmm. Um, The other discussion, because our technology, our platform, XDEX, the extended index, um is that records management metadata layer for governance, risk, and compliance where all of the, you know, contracts and documents and agreements and workflows and you know the transactions recorded on a layer one public blockchain, but all of the rest of the things that go into regulatory compliance, it's not so easy to move those things around on a layer one chain. So we've got a layer mm. two, is what it's called, a side chain, basically. Um, that functions as an Oracle. An Oracle is basically a callable data source from a a blockchain to access non-chain data for use on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. So all the subscription agreements, for example, are digitized and hashed and encoded so that they can be provable that, yes, this is a PDF of the actual subscription doc. Um, And and that all of that metadata can be called by a smart contract on the layer one chain, right? So that if you've got a Solana-based securities token that's floating around, mm-hmm. et cetera. So the reason I bring that up is because the the third path for exit for us would be to ultimately just make the decision to transform xDEX into a layer one chain and decentralize xDEX, and just absorb the company you know shareholders of the company would get pro rata tokens from their equity ownership
0: essentially become a cryptocurrency yeah become a DAO.
2: yeah become a a DAO managed network and absorb the company right
0: in and yeah i guess my last question you know what is one thing that you've learned throughout i guess your journey uh as you know maybe a co-founder maybe it's you know, working in the community, what is that one thing that you have learned uh, that you wish you could have told yourself you know, earlier in your career?
2: Well, I'm going to steal from uh, Warren Buffett on this one, and I only mm-hmm. recently heard him say this quote, but um, you can never enter into a great contract with a bad person. Bad people don't care about violating the terms of the contract. They'll sue you and litigate. They love litigation, right? And, you know, the sooner that you stop being so optimistic when the warning bells are going off, you know, like, ah, eh, maybe I'm just being suspicious and conspiracy-minded yeah, about this person. Yeah, giving too much
1: benefit of the doubt.
2: Yeah, because we all want to be good people <clears throat> and, you know, look past other people's faults. And there really are yeah. a lot of egregious jerks in in business that see business as a pure zero-sum game which it's not,
1: yeah.
2: it's absolutely not shared upside. If there's any one thing that I took away from Founder Institute because the program is structured to, to share the upside between the mentors, the directors, the found, graduating founders themselves, you know, it's yeah. that community-based approach, you know, if you can incentivize everybody to build that community and work to support each other, you know, mm-hmm. I'd rather have, you know, a share of a much bigger pie than a tiny little pie, right?
1: Yeah, getting into entrepreneurship for the right reasons, and hopefully being able to weed out those who are not.
2: Yeah, and that goes back to the Founder Institute behavioral assessment because uh, Adeo's theory was is that insanity and entrepreneurship are very, very close. So how do you weed out the mentally ill folks from the ones that are actually <laughs> driven by a mission and passion, right? <laughs> so.
1: True. Well, and, and and so I guess my, my last question for you is what advice then can you give to someone who is looking to move into entrepreneurship um, and especially, you know, in, in the blockchain space uh, moving forward?
2: Well, so those are two very different things. If they're thinking about moving into entrepreneurship... Um, mm-hmm. CEO is the crappiest job in the whole company. Everybody wants to be the CEO and I'm here to tell you it is the absolute worst. It really is.
0: Why is that? Well responsibility.
1: It's not
2: so much the responsibility, it's the fact that in order to be an effective good leader, CEO, you have to be there for your people, which means that everybody believes that they have unmitigated access to you all time to- all the time, every day, all day long which means that because the, everyone feels like they have privileged special access to you at all times, you get to hear about every problem in the company with the attached expectation that you are the one that can and will do something about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have to, you, you have to love the team. You have to truly love and care about the people and, um, you know, be willing to extend yourself in 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 so many of those ways. But being CEO and I talked to other CEOs of later stage companies and, and they all, you know, consistently share the same thing, it is really lonely. It is really hard yeah. it is very very mm. very hard once the glamour is gone from the cool sachet of being the cool startup kids and all that and you've been grinding away for four or five six years and you know the fatigue is really there i mean heck i just went back just recently and ran across some pictures even from like 2017 2018 yeah from like the startup sensing community I had color in my beard. (laughs) Like literally, I've gone completely like gray and white the past four years.
1: (laughs) It happens to every president too. When they they enter office to when they leave office, it's 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 never, they're never the same
2: looking person. So unless you can truly commit yourself to the mission and then the people and the team, you know, it's, it's great to be in a, you know, in the first 10 employees. You know, but uh, I,
1: I I don't. Yeah, it's fun and fresh. Yeah. I,
2: I I do not recommend it unless you're a really truly you know you're you're willing to <laughs> go through the slog.
1: You're not the first. Yeah. You're not the first person you're to not. say that too. And again, that's sometimes a hard reality that people don't want to hear. And we can glamorize what entrepreneurship is, but mm-hmm. when it comes down to the day to day tasks that's and what need do. to be done at yeah. hands at hand, it's not always fun. Embrace well, the suck. Yeah. Yes. Actually, that was exactly <laughs> that that's exactly
0: yeah. what one of our earlier guests said. Yep. So uh, definitely, I think that's a great note to end on. Michael, I don't think you realize this, but Ali and I now have unmitigated access to you, and you will be solving all our problems. Yes, you, you did. Yeah, we already asked you to the, solve all, all of Cincinnati's
1: Cincinnati, problems. Too, so. our <laughs> yeah. and and with that, um, if people want to learn more about you or more about Ten X T S, where can they go?
2: I'm pretty easy to find. I'm at Michael Hiles on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. i got a, a pretty sizable footprint on LinkedIn as well. Um, 10xts.com, 10xts. Um, we just fired back up the newsletter, the weekly newsletter, and we've got you know – we're content rich, so if you're interested in asset tokenization yeah. and – Raising capital and traditional capital markets. Uh, we we really try to be an educational resource. Get on the mailing list. Um, we're constantly promoting uh, webinars. I'm I speak nonstop. I mean, I'm literally speaking at two conferences <laughs> next week. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm,
1: you can't miss you, I guess. And our next task now is to create a jingle for blockchain.
2: Well. I'm looking for a coin because I was going to drop a coin on the table because I think we could do like, that. We'll, like we'll
1: we'll add a little a sound coin. effect in.
2: Yeah, the clinking of a coin, like clink clink clink.
1: <laughs> Insert sound effect now. Or you could do like the uh,
2: the 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 um, Scrooge, you know, Christmas Carol with the chains of Christmas future. Uh, oh, my. The, 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 the blockchain dragging of chains. I don't.
1: <laughs> so. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Well, on that. Michael, we really do appreciate uh, your time today. Uh, It was very insightful, and I know I I I enjoyed the conversation.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Thank you, Allie. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening.
0: I know I say this every podcast, but I just (laughs) learned so much. Don't
1: make me cut this out. (laughs) But what, what, What I really liked about this conversation with Michael is we really touched on a lot of different aspects of... You know not just like entrepreneurship but we talked about blockchain as well we talked mm. about what he's doing and we talked a little bit about Cincinnati history which was a fun fact
0: I know he brought our fun facts today so we are grateful to him yeah. uh but also you know he actually gave actual I- items that I guess the state of Ohio and the city of Cincinnati itself can do to be a more attractive place for founders mm-hmm. and business owners mm-hmm. so they're not off leaving to you know Miami or, <laughs> or LA yeah. uh to get you know that tax break that you know maybe it's not all about taxes like he said but it's it's a big portion of it and him working in in the digitization of securities, right? That to mm-hmm. help people get those liquidity events quicker. Uh you know he sees that as a huge barrier. So he sees it probably more than you and I ever see in the news, right? People trying to get their money out and, you know, they're moving to Florida before they do that. So they get a huge tax break,
1: you know? And, and I think we, we reiterated this in the podcast and he had kind of made a comment about it too. When we weren't, when we stopped recording of, Oh, I don't want to be too negative, but it's not about being negative. It's about being real with the situation at hand. And sometimes the truth hurts. You know, there are a lot of great things about the city and things that we're doing, but a reason why we have this podcast is to hopefully shine a light on things that we can do better, or at least acknowledging that, hey, there's a gaping hole here. What, how do we need to pivot? What do we need to do to make it more appealing to get more money in this city, especially when it comes to tech and to Mm. build more companies, build more startups, bring in more engineers, bring in more people with PhDs like Michael said but also how do we keep them here does that that does that extend and how do you pivot mm. a culture right cuz then you're also that's culturally based
0: i don't know is, is it even <laughs> possible
1: I, am i speaking in utopian language <laughs> maybe I I think we
0: can. I think that's, I mean, going back to, like you said, that's why we started this podcast. I think let's start the conversation, right? Um, You know, Ohio has some of the most, what did you say? Most capital per, you know, per person, like (laughs) in terms of wealth, like why isn't that wealth going into startups or into, you know, newer technologies? And the fact that Cincinnati used to be a hub for, in finance, right? Yeah. The Cincinnati Stock Exchange. I didn't even know Cincinnati had a stock exchange until this conversation. And, he makes and-
1: a- <laughs> we, we've been innovative. Truly, we've been innovative since you know the late. Late, early 1800s all the way through till the 1980s. And I can't say that we haven't been innovated, innovative mm-hmm. since the 1980s. We have been, but especially in the early 1800s. We slowed so down we, a lot. Oh my gosh. Yeah, from manufacturing, you name it, we were constantly innovating. And uh, it would be nice to try to bring that energy back.
0: And I think that energy will come back, especially if you have founders like... You know, Michael said that truly care about their teams and care mm-hmm. about the people because if once you start caring about the people, I think you know people will stay where they're at because they're mm-hmm. happy, and yeah. um, you know maybe if everybody just did their part in you know making sure their teams are happy, then, you know, maybe we'll have more people stay here.
1: <laughs> but then, then again, that's also putting a lot of responsibility, like Michael said at the end, as an entrepreneur and as a CEO mm. on an individual. And you have to you have to want that. And sometimes mm. our culture as a city doesn't necessarily correlate with that toughness and that adversity and that really hardcore mental strength. We are a little bit more laid back here, which has its pros and cons, right? Yes, but it take one. I I loved to kind of switch gears. I really liked his passion for the behavior assessment. Mm. That's something, personally, Patrick. I don't know if you've had the chance to take. I, I, I feel like we all should be taking them.
0: I have not taken an entrepreneurial. Maybe assessment. we should
1: do that.
0: Maybe we should reach out to Michael to give us a link to that somehow. Yeah, like or something or, similar. Yeah, something similar. Or you know, maybe the city of Cincinnati or the University of Cincinnati, Xavier or NKU mm-hmm. could invest in this to help. You know, foster entrepreneurship within their own yeah, start areas spheres of influence.
1: Early. Yeah. Or for mentors.
0: Yeah. I think we need more mentors in this city. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what's going to solve, uh, you know, our uh, kind of gap in slowness to market, but we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. What can the city of Cincinnati be doing better? What could the state of Ohio be doing better? Reach yeah. out to us, email us at host at whenpigsfly.fm that is hosts plural, H-O-S-T-S at whenpigsfly.fm. Allie and I both receive uh, an email from that email account, so we love hearing from you. Or you can just DM us on, slide in our DMs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. We are on all those social media channels. And Allie, most importantly, what should our listeners be doing?
1: I actually have two things this time. I know normally I say my solid one. I (laughs) I also want to add in on any of those platforms, if you want to send us any sort of voice memo or voicemail we would love to hear that as well and who knows maybe we'll plug it into one of our podcasts and we'll do some special episodes or throw it into any of these decompresses um but so that's number one and number two don't forget to tell a friend or a family (laughs) member or your dog or anybody who likes to listen to podcasts okay that's all i got
0: and on that note cheers cheers
1: and here's some necessary legal stuff Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company, LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or any financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the E.W. Scripps Company and its affiliates or Generator Management, LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employs us this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions we have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on the show thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week we also want to give a shout out to claire and christian of moonbow they're the two artists of our intro song which is so catchy and get stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.